The text for this morning's message will be found in Daniel, the book of Daniel. And as you turn there, I would like to read to you from uh, the book of 2 Kings and just kind of give you an idea of who it is we're dealing with. We have talked quite a bit about King Nebuchadnezzar and the ruling power of the world. And... uh, We need to understand just who it is. Sometimes we think, man, maybe he's not so bad. Well, both the book of Kings and Chronicles, 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, tell us of what he does and of of his reign. And in 2 Kings 24 and 25, I'll just read you a couple verses. It talks about the reigning king of Israel, Jehoiakim. He reigned in Jerusalem three months. And at that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came up against Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. And he's placed in prison for 30-something years. It's Nebuchadnezzar's son that lets him out of prison. And in fact, you know what Nebuchadnezzar names his son? Evil Marudok. He names his son Evil, (laughs) with another name on the end. So this king, who is in power when Nebuchadnezzar comes along, is put in prison for 38 years, but that's not it. Nebuchadnezzar carries away all Jerusalem, all the princes, all the mighty men of valor, even 10,000 captives, and all the uh, craftsmen and smiths, and none remain save the poorest sort of people of the land. So King Nebuchadnezzar comes in the first time, takes all the best. That's where Daniel and his friends are carried away. And he sets up a king named Zedekiah. Well, Zedekiah rebels, and here's what happens to him. Here's what Nebuchadnezzar does to him. So he took the king, uh, Zedekiah, and brought him up to the king of Babylon, to Riblah, and they gave judgment upon him. And they slew the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and put out the eyes of Zedekiah. So they bring this guy up, they kill his kids in front of him, and then put his eyes out. So the last thing that he sees is his sons being killed. This is Nebuchadnezzar. Then it goes on to tell us how he burns the house of the Lord and all the houses of Jerusalem and he decimates and breaks down the walls. He levels the city. This is who we're dealing with. Okay. There's many other things we could read, but I think you get the idea. This King Nebuchadnezzar is not a gentle, nice man. That said, our text this morning will be Daniel chapter 4. And let's read together the first three verses. Daniel chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. The Bible says this, Nebuchadnezzar the king, unto all people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied unto you. I thought it good to show the signs and wonders that the high God hath wrought toward me. How great are his signs! How mighty are his wonders! His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. You might read that and say, say what? Who's writing this? And what is he saying? Well, we're going to talk about that. What on earth happened to get Nebuchadnezzar to this place when before he wasn't at all concerned about God? So we're going to talk about this mor- that this morning and along with it, which is the title of the message, is The Problem of Pride. So let's bow our heads if you would. Father, I thank you for this day and for the grace and the mercy that you've uh, just showered upon us. I ask you to uh, be with us during this preaching time, Lord, that your word would sound forth clear. Give me the strength to do that and that we would have open hearts and open minds. 
that would, we would look into our own lives and where we might fall short, where there might be pride, and that you would break it down and help us to humble ourselves in your sight. So do the work that only you can do now through this time, Lord, and, and move among us. I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So there, there's sometimes a message goes different than you think. I'm, I'm pretty familiar with this portion of Scripture. In fact, it's one of my favorites, uh, just because of what it represents. But when you come to a preaching of it, it sometimes it turns out a little bit different. I, I have a commitment to preach the Word and what the Word says, not what I think it says, or not to try to twist it in any other way. I have a calling to simply present this is what the Bible says, and these are the lessons in it. So when you begin to dig deeper, you begin to think about the main themes of a passage, sometimes you see things that you didn't before. That's been the case with this passage. And so I stand this morning uh, with a different message than I thought I would. I try for the most part to be encouraging. I try for the most part to be exhorting in my preaching. And that means let's all motivate each other. All right, come on, let's, let's all try to step up to this next level. We can do it. The Lord will help us. I try to be encouraging and, and, and try to step alongside and let, let's do this together, right? Let's, let's live right together. There's also times of reproving in my ministry, which means, hey, this is false. Here's the truth. This is uh, the truth, and this idea is wrong, so we need to step away from it. That's called uh, reproof. When you see wrong teaching and you, you, you go against it with the truth of the Scripture. But the Bible tells me that I have a threefold ministry. Second Timothy chapter 4 says, I am to reprove, rebuke, and exhort as I preach the word. Rebuke. Rebuke means to warn sharply. You can see it as Jesus rebukes his disciples sometimes, or there is letters of rebuke written to different churches in the New Testament. And so I say that uh, for this reason. I come before you with a warning today. With a warning. You see, I am the pastor, I'm not a puppet, I'm not a performer. I am the under-shepherd of this local body of Christ. And He has entrusted to me some things regarding the preaching of the Word and the care for your souls. And I, I don't say that because there's any problems or not that I'm trying to flex any authority. I'm simply saying it's part of my calling at times to warn. Not only to herald the gospel, but to also herald God's judgment. So I come today before you with a warning. It's a warning for those in authority. It's a warning for the president if he would listen. For the governors of the land, for the mayors, the senators and the representatives. It's a warning for company owners and company workers, employers and employees. It's a warning for dads and moms and husbands and wives. You see, it's a warning for each and every one of you and a warning for me. And the warning is this, beware of the problem of pride. It will put you down. It will bring destruction in your life. And we had best listen when the scripture warns us, whether it's outright instruction or it's by example, we need to be aware of the problem of pride within our own hearts. And to be truthful, the warning doesn't come from me. 
It comes from someone we should be acquainted with by now. And you might think, well, it comes from righteous and courageous Daniel or from one of his three companions. But the warning isn't from them. It's from the most surprising source. You see that right there in the start of verse 1? Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar. This chapter in the holy inspired word of God is written by the ruler of Babylon. You know, you might have your own beliefs. We can all have some quirky beliefs. But I believe when, we, when it's all said and done and we are able to stand in heaven, we'll be able to see the word of God. Not only physically in Christ, of course, He is the Word incarnate, but I'm talking about the actual Word. Moses' writings, the actual letters of Paul or Matthew's record of the Gospel. You see, Jesus said, My words will not pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away, but not My words. I think we'll be able to finally gaze upon the Word and understand it. Like, we'll actually be able to understand what Leviticus is all about and some of these things that maybe it's hard for our human mind to understand. But there's coming a day when I believe we'll be able to see the Word of God. And when you look at Daniel's writings, when you come to chapter 4, there will be a difference. Because this is the testimony of a pagan king. This is the testimony of the ruler of the world. And what he says is amazing. So I want to turn your attention to that. Look what he said. We read for our text. He says, uh, I want to tell everybody in verse 1, all the people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I want to let you know how to have peace. He starts with that, and then he's going to kind of end with that in, in the last few verses. Peace be multiplied to you. I thought it would be good to tell all that God has done toward me. How great are His signs, verse 3. How mighty are His wonders. And His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And His dominion from generation to generation. Those are good and right words. But they're not characteristic of Nebuchadnezzar, are they? Do you remember in chapter 3, in verse 15, He says this, Who is that God that shall deliver you out of My hands? Who is God that He's going to save you from Me? That's the kind of thing we see from Nebuchadnezzar, and yeah, something might happen and he might say some good things, but it's nothing like this. So what happened to to change that? You know, he sounds a lot like another world ruler who was pretty consumed with pride. Sounds a lot like Pharaoh, doesn't he? Do you remember in Exodus chapter 5 when Pharaoh says this? Who is the Lord that I shall obey his voice and let Israel go? I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. Well, what happened to change Nebuchadnezzar's tune? Well, he tells us, and in doing so, as he tells us what happened to him and all these great and mighty wonders, he's going to give us the warning. So, what happens is it starts with a dream. It's another dream that he has, and the dream he, he, he's going to tell us starts in verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace. That word literally means growing green. Everything's going good. The kingdom's on the upswing, business is good, rulership is good, and he's just enjoying it. He was in my palace, flourishing. Verse 5, And I saw a dream which made me afraid, and the thoughts upon my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. 
Therefore made I a decree to bring in all the wise men of Babylon before me, that they might make known unto me the interpretation of the dream. Then came in the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers, and I told the dream before them. But they did not make known unto me the interpretation thereof. I think there is two jobs you can be totally inept at and still be fine. Number one is a weatherman, and number two is a wise man in Babylon. These guys never get anything right in Scripture. It's amazing he still employs them. But he has this dream, he brings them in, they can't decipher it, they can't tell it. Well, look at verse 8. But at the last, Daniel came in before me, whose name was Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God. And in whom is the spirit of the holy gods? By the way, that word is Elohim. It's also translated nearly every other place in Scripture as God. It's a name of God. So what he's saying is, in him is the spirit of God. And before him I told the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, master of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in thee, and no secret troubleth thee. Tell me the visions of my dream that I have seen, and the interpretation thereof. He brings in Daniel. It's God's man who will deliver the truth. It's God's man who he has placed at this uh, place of supremacy, the master of the magi. And he is going to be the one who tells the dream. This is the dream. Verse 10. There were the visions of my head in my bed, and I saw, behold, a tree in the midst of the earth. And the height thereof was great, and the tree grew and was excuse me, the tree grew and was strong, and the height thereof reached unto heaven, and the sight thereof to the end of all the earth. And the leaves thereof were fair, and the fruit thereof much, and in it was meat for all the beasts of the field had shadow under it, and the fowls of heaven dwelt in the boughs thereof, and all flesh was fed of it. I saw in the visions of my head upon my bed, behold, a watcher and a holy one came down from heaven. He cried aloud and said thus, Hew down the tree and cut off his branches. Shake off his leaves and scatter his fruit. Let the beasts get away from under it and the fowls from under his branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump of his roots in the earth, even with a band of iron and brass and the tender grass of the field. And let it be wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beasts of the grass of the earth. Let his heart be changed from man's and let a beast's heart be given unto him. And let seven times pass over him. This matter is by decree of the watchers and demand of the word of the holy ones to the intent that the living may know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will and setteth up over it the basest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now thou, O Belteshazzar, declare the interpretation thereof, forasmuch as all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known unto me the interpretation, but thou art able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in thee. It's a pretty straightforward dream. He sees this huge tree. Then an angel comes down, says, cut it down. Cut it down to a stump. Don't totally kill it. Till it learns some things till it learns that the Most High rules. It's a warning from God. There's a lot of symbolism here. There's a lot of things that actually run the length of Scripture. We don't have time for that this morning, but there's a lot of symbolism here. It's kind of shrouded so the king can't understand it, but still it's a warning that God gives him. And what strikes me as I read that 
is there's a lot of communication from God to this man, isn't there? This is already the second dream we have seen that God has given. And Nebuchadnezzar has seen some pretty amazing things, kind of like Pharaoh. And remember, this is not a nice man, but yet God reaches down to him, doesn't he? Thank God for that. Thank God that he reaches down to the unlikable, the messed up, the screwed up, the wretched, the ones who hate him, the ones who are filled with spite. Thank God that he reaches out to those who want nothing to do with him, like the Sauls of the world, the crooked, godless politicians. Thank God that He reaches down to sinners because you know what? That includes you and me, doesn't it? And if God reaches out, maybe we ought to a little more. So He sends a warning. He tells Daniel that all that we read is He's telling Daniel the dream. So let's look at Daniel's reaction. Verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was astonished for one hour, and his thoughts troubled him. And the king spake and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation thereof trouble thee. He's astonished. The word literally means to be appalled or stunned. This gets to him. It affects him. And you actually see that quite often in the book. When Daniel receives like bad news or heavy news, it really affects him. He doesn't take it lightly. And this dream is not a good dream. In fact, here's what Daniel says in the end of verse 19. And Belteshazzar answered and said, My Lord, the dream be to them that hate thee, and the interpretation thereof to thine enemies. I wish this was for somebody else. I wish this dream had come for your enemies because it's bad. Huh. You'd think he'd be excited. You'd think you'd be doing a little godly dance and say, yeah, about time, God. About time you got to this guy and brought him down. What took you so long? I've been waiting for this for a long time. You'd think he'd be running around in circles. You're going to get it. Ah, ha, ha. He doesn't, does he? No. Daniel has a godly, caring heart. Even for those that hate him and those that hate God. This dream is bad, as we'll see. And if you know the story, you know it's bad for Nebuchadnezzar. He's going to get cut down is what's going to happen. But that affects Daniel. It breaks his heart. So much so, he says, man, I wish this wasn't going to happen to you. And so he gives the interpretation. Now he's going to tell Nebuchadnezzar, here's what the dream means. Let's just paraphrase it. Verse 20 says, you know that tree that you saw that was huge and reached up to heaven and all the leaves were fair and all of that? Verse 22, it is thou, O king, that tree is you. It is thou, O king, that art grown and become strong, for thy greatness is grown and reacheth unto heaven and thy dominion to the end of the earth. You rule the earth. And he did. Nebuchadnezzar ruled the known world. He he, he put down Egypt. Egypt is no longer a power at this time. Nebuchadnezzar is the king of the world. And his greatness has come to encompass all nations. He says, that tree you saw is you. 
And he goes on, verse 23, you saw this watcher, this, this great angel come down and says, cut down the tree and destroy it. Yet, leave the stump of the roots, bind it with a brand of iron and brass. And all that goes on, verse 24, this is the interpretation, O king. This is the decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the King. Verse 25, that they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And they shall make thee to eat grass as oxen. And they shall wet thee with the dew of heaven till seven times shall pass over thee. You know what I interpret, I interpret that as? Seven years. Why? Because it talks about other sevens in the other parts of this book when it comes to prophecy. Till seven times. Seven years this is going to happen to you, Nebuchadnezzar. Till thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will. And whereas they commanded to leave the stump of the tree roots, thy kingdom shall be sure unto thee, after that thou shalt have known that the heavens do rule. You're going to be cut down, Nebuchadnezzar. You're going to lose everything. This tree is you. You're going to lose everything. You're going to be cut down. You're going to go crazy, basically, until you realize who God is. There's an old Johnny Cash song. Sooner or later, God will cut you down. And this is what's happening to Nebuchadnezzar. Until you know that God rules. Until you recognize His authority, His kingdom. Now you see why he was so bothered? And notice this too. The king doesn't kill him. Which he very well could have. There's a relationship that has been established between these two. But I also want you to know that Daniel doesn't leave it at that. Like, here's the message, boom, mic drop, I'm out. No, he goes a step further. And he gives a warning that you and I need to hear. Verse 27. Wherefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable unto thee. He says, hey, listen to what I'm going to tell you right now, please. Break off thy sins by righteousness and thine iniquities by showing mercy to the poor, if it may be a lengthening of thy tranquility. Repent and do right. Do what you know you need to do, and your peace will be established. Turn away from your sins and know peace. You better straighten out, king. You better be righteous. Now, you notice he doesn't explain? Like in, here's what you need to do to be righteous? I find that interesting. Well, I don't think you have to explain something you've already explained. Do you know that scholars placed this some 35 years into the reign of Nebuchadnezzar? 35 years. That's 30 plus years of Daniel in his court day after day. Day after day after day. Daniel doing what Daniel does and being righteous. Daniel doing what he does and reaching out to the king. And the king doesn't ask, well, what do you mean? What do I need to do to be righteous? I think he knows. I think Daniel's told him. I think Daniel's lived it out. You see, Daniel was an example of righteousness. Break off your sins and do righteously. And king, you know what that means. Well, we'll come back to that in just a moment. What I want to talk about for a bit 
is what all this is pointing to. Why does God warn him? Why is this judgment coming? What is the root issue here? It's pride. It's pride. Pride in the heart of this king. And here's why I say that. Look at verse 29. At the end of 12 months, he walked in the palace of the kingdom of Babylon. And the king spake and said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? Hmm. Look what I have built. Look what I have done. All this for me, for my glory. Nobody else can do this. I have built Babylon. This is a man who is full of, lifted up with, and consumed with pride. You see, he's built an empire that controls the world. He's put down any and all of his enemies. He alone calls the shots. People bow to him. He makes statues of himself and says, hey, when this music plays, you bow to me. And the whole world does exactly what he says. He is a walking, talking picture of pride. Look what I have built. Well, make no mistake what the Bible says about pride. Proverbs 16 and 5. Everyone that is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. And though hand join in hand, though he can join forces with others, he shall not be unpunished. God hates pride. It is an abomination to them. In fact, it's probably one of mankind's greatest sins. It's us putting ourselves in the place of God. There is a blemish that mars all of our hearts, and that blemish is pride. Now, it may be outright and bold like Nebuchadnezzar, or it may be quiet and concealed, but it is there, isn't it? We all have pride in our hearts. And I would go so far even to say that pride is the ultimate sin. Now, don't confuse it with what we call the unforgivable sin. The unforgivable sin is unbelief. But pride is the door to that, isn't it? We don't believe God. We don't believe His truth. We don't believe in Christ the Savior, quite honestly, because we think something else. Or we don't agree with it. Or we don't accept that, right? That's pride. That's pride. I know what you want me to do, God, but I ain't going to do it. That's pride. The excuses we come up with to either do something wrong or not do something right is rooted in the pride of our own heart. And pride is the door to most sins, isn't it? Whether it be adultery, fornication, or theft, or lying, or whatever it is, the door that opens to that is pride. It's the worship of self. I, literally, is right in the middle of the Word. And that's what it's all about, isn't it? The word means to rise up, and it's when we rise up in our own hearts, in our own thinking, our own reasoning against God or against others. You know, pride can damage our relationship with others. We place ourselves at the head of it all. We are in control of it all. We alone call the shots. We put down any and all who would stand in our way, kind of like King Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, and our human nature loves it, don't we? Let's be honest. We love the feeling of a puffed-out chest. We, our human nature loves the feeling of looking down our nose at other people, of the one who is right, like, all the time. 
You got any questions on life? Just come see me because I know what I'm talking about. You know those kind of people, right? And we love that feeling. We love being the one in control, the one on top. Because no one, absolutely no one tells me what to do. And our human nature loves the freedom from any ruling authority but our own. But let me tell you, it may feel good to the flesh, but it only brings destruction. It only brings destruction. You don't want to know why, do you want to know why sometimes our walk with God is damaged? It's pride. We're going to quote this later in the, the sermon, but God resists the proud. You ever wonder why your prayers aren't answering? You feel like you're for pride. Maybe we need to humble ourselves before God. It damages our relationship with God. Many marriages stay at a stalemate or they stay in ruins because neither one wants to uh, admit that they're wrong. Neither spouse wants to change. That's a prideful heart. Friendships are broken because pride gets in the way. Pride can tear a church apart. And again, there's nothing that takes us farther away from God than pride. A prideful heart damages us. Man, we won't listen. A prideful heart won't listen. A prideful heart won't take counsel. A prideful heart won't be instructed. Instead, it becomes hard and bitter and hateful. This king had many chances, didn't he? Daniel chapter 1, Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 3. And all the years in between. All those times that were a wake-up call to King Nebuchadnezzar, but he wouldn't be instructed. And so what's left is drastic measures. And the Bible is clear as well. Pride cometh before a what? A promotion. Pride cometh before recognition and victory, right? No, it comes before a what? A fall. Actually, here's what the Bible says. Pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Pride cometh before the fall. And how many times have we seen that happen? How many times have we seen its destruction in our own lives, right? But we hear the warnings and we turn a deaf ear. How many times have we walked around our little empires and said the same thing? Look at all I got. I found myself doing that. Well, not like that. That's, that's a bad example. I, but I, I don't remember what I was doing. I had all the cars out of the garage and doing something. I looked around and said, man, I got a lot of stuff. That's kind of cool. Well, see, the, the, the wonderful thing about being a pastor is these messages hit me. And I was studying for this at the time. It's within the last week. Instantly. You're like Nebuchadnezzar. That hit my heart. Whoa, I am sorry, Lord. Please forgive me. This is all from you. I got, I got to get in line real quick with start thinking like that. But how, how many times do we do that, right? We walk around our little empires or whatever we have done and, ah, this is good. Look what I've done. It's better we just stop and pray and thank Him for God's gracious hand in our lives, right? 
And the warning that Daniel gives here rings true for us today. Repent, turn back from sin, humble yourself, and know the peace of God. You see, the farther we get away from God in pride, the more unrest there is in our spirits. And so many people are troubled. So many people lack tranquility, lack true peace. And the root issue is pride. They will not humble themselves before God. Why? Because that phrase sounds really bad to our flesh. We read things like submit. We read things like humble yourself in the Scripture. And our flesh box against it, right? I humble myself for no one. I submit to no one. Well, you know what? The farther we get away from God and the more pride there is in our hearts, the less peace there is. But when you truly humble yourself before God, you can have peace. Like peace even facing the fire of a furnace. Peace facing a lion's den. Peace facing whatever we may in this life because we know who is in control. Well, did he listen? Well, no, he didn't, did he? Let me read you a very sad verse, verse 28. All this came upon the king Nebuchadnezzar. All this came upon, it happened. It didn't have to, but it did, because he didn't listen. How many times has that repeated itself? How many sermons have come from pulpits? Or how many times has the Spirit led our hearts through the reading of the Word? And we don't listen. And God even gives us time. God gave him 12 months, didn't He? He gave him a year before this happened. 12 months to think about it. 12 months to make the changes. And Maybe He did for the first month or two. And then He forgot. Kind of like what we do with New Year's resolutions, right? I'm going to get fit this year. I'm going to go out and buy a gym membership. And within two or three months, we don't even go anymore. You know, we do that with God. Maybe we'll hear a good message or something will touch our heart. And man, we're on fire for the Lord and I'm going to change and I'm going to get right. And then we drift off the other way, don't we? And God still gives us time. God still draws us. He gave this king 12 months. You see, sometimes we try to reform ourselves, but what is not needed is reformation. What is needed is transformation. We need a totally or a totally new or a renewed heart that is humble and that is seeking God. Not one that is lifted up in pride, but one that lifts Him up in praise. And that kind of change doesn't come from human effort. It comes from reliance of God. It comes from the Holy Spirit working and moving within me to make me more like Him as I follow Him. He didn't listen. He didn't take it to heart. And so it unfolds. Look at verse 31. Remember, he's walking around saying, look what I have built. Verse 31. While the word was in the king's mouth, he doesn't even finish the sentence. There fell a voice from heaven saying, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from thee. And they shall drive thee from men. And thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and seven times shall pass over thee, until thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. That same hour was the thing fulfilled upon Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men. He's cast out of the palace. He's cast out into the wild. And he did eat grass as oxen. Didn't eat food. He ate grass. He's turned into an animal. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven. That means he didn't go into a house. He slept out in the field and he lived out in the fields. And the hairs were grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. 
He looks pretty bad. (laughs) I've seen some people who have ended up on the streets that really need a haircut and really need a bath. This guy blows them out of the water. Seven years. Seven years. He is humbled. This is the king of the earth for all intents and purposes. And he is brought down. I'm reminded as I read these of the verses that describe the fall of Lucifer, the fall of Satan. Oh, how you are brought down, who used to be the star of the morning. It also talks about people walking by and wagging their heads. And this used to be the king of the world. They would do the same with Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, how you are fallen. Many scholars say this is a sudden mental illness. And maybe God could have used that. God uses the natural for the supernatural all the time. But he also steps in and does what he wants, doesn't he? He brought the king down in an instant. I gave you warning. You didn't listen. You did not humble yourself before me, so now I will humble you. I don't know if you've experienced that in your life. We may have to different degrees. Maybe not as uh, abject as this, but I've experienced God's humbling in my life. It's not a good feeling, is it? It's not a good feeling. Maybe we got too lifted up with pride or, or, well, that's the door to all sins, isn't it? Maybe we got too prideful and God said, hey, wake up. Wake up. You see, that kind of humbling is usually never pleasant. Voluntary humbling, though it may be hard for our flesh, it has this fulfillment to it. It has this peace to it. When I humble myself before God and I say, you are king, you are Lord, that's different when God shows me that He is, right? There's a vast difference between voluntary humility and humbling at the hand of God. So the call is to do it now before God does. He's here. He's alone. He's in need. He has nothing left. And it stays like this until he learns the lesson. Seven years. Seven wasted years. Living like an animal, literally. Years of destruction. Years of desolation. Years of isolation. You know what? Maybe some of you can look back and see those in your life. Years that could have been avoided if you would have listened. Well, either way, the lesson is going to be learned and Nebuchadnezzar is going to be taught. Perhaps we ought to listen. Look, if you would, in verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes unto heaven. That's the first step. The Bible uses that phrase many times. It speaks of prayer. We ought to humble ourselves first by acknowledging who God is. Lift your eyes up to heaven, not with inside. You want guidance for your life? Don't look inside. Don't look in some book. Don't look to some man. Lift your eyes to heaven. I lifted up my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High. I praised and honored Him that liveth forever whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom is for generation to generation. My understanding returned, the light clicked on, and I realized who God is. 
and I praise Him, not myself. I honor Him, not myself. His kingdom is greater than mine. This is the guy who rules the world. His kingdom is greater. His dominion is greater. I, in the face of it, am nothing. Look, verse 35, And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. (laughs) What a change, right? Look what I have built for my glory and, and all that I have done. And now he's saying all of us are as nothing compared to God. And he doeth according to the will in the army of heaven, according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? Hmm. That seems out of place, right? No. Do you understand what he's saying? God is sovereign. He can do what he wants. That's what the verse says, right? He's not saying, why did you do this to me, God? No, none can say, what doest thou? Why did you do this to me, God? Why couldn't you have just told me? Ah, uh, he did. Why couldn't you have just shown me? He did. Why did I have to go through that and all that destruction? No, Nebuchadnezzar stands on the other side and says, okay, I get it. That had to happen for me to come to this place now. And you, God, in your sovereign plan, did your will. That's a hard thing for a human to admit, isn't it? But Nebuchadnezzar comes out on the other side and says, I understand. I know who God is now. He finally learned the lesson. He finally saw what he should have seen all along. What his own pride kept him from seeing. But I also want you to know that there's mercy in the humbling. Look at verse 36. At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and brightness returned to me. And my counselors and my lords sought unto me, and I was established in my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added unto me. God brought it back. God restored him and gave him more. That's the goal of the humbling. Mercy and grace is always the goal of God's working in our life. That we would turn to Him. That we would renew our faith in Him. That we would bow before Him. The promise was at the beginning in the dream, your kingdom is sure to you. It's yours. It's not going anywhere, but it's going to stay here until you learn. And that's exactly what God did. There is always mercy in God's working. And some of you have seen that, right? We didn't understand it at the time, but we look back now and we see growth. We see more that has been added to us. We see God in a, we know God in a greater way, don't we? And we can appreciate the hard times because we see His working in it. I don't know what this sounds like to you, and I'm sure there's those who would love to debate it. They'll debate with you whether Adam had a belly button or not, whether it was a fish or a whale that swallowed Jonah. They love to debate just about anything, but it sure sounds to me like this king had a change of heart, doesn't it? Sure sounds to me like maybe he'd said some nice and even right things about God, but these statements are drastically different. It's like Nebuchadnezzar knows who God is now, as if there was a radical change in his life. 
as if he repented of some things, if he broke off his sins and did righteous. I believe this pagan king met God and, to use a New Testament term, was saved. I believe I'll see him someday. He's one of those guys that's going to walk around with a sign, Yes, I'm here. I'm surprised to see you too. <laughs> you know, These people we read, we come down hard on Adam. He's going to hold the sign and say, You would have done it too. <laughs> we come down hard on people like King Nebuchadnezzar, but man, the statements he makes here, sure sounds like he knows who God is. Though it was a hard road to bring him to this point, wasn't it? You don't have to travel down that road. You don't have to fight God or kick against the goads as Saul of Tarsus did before he became Paul. Every inch of the way fighting God and bucking God and, and rejecting His Word. You don't have to do that. And that's the warning that he gives. The warning for this morning comes from King Nebuchadnezzar. And it's in verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of Heaven. All whose works are truth and His ways judgment... And those that walk in pride, he is able to abase. Now I know. Now I know. I wish I would have listened before. He brings down the prideful, and his ways and his works are truth. Not my ways. I know that now, but I had to go through it first. Don't do the same. Listen to me. I want peace to be multiplied to you. So humble yourself before God, because if not, He is able to abase the proud. Oh, we can save ourselves from so much heartache if we would simply listen. If we would turn away from our sin, turn away from our pride, and listen to God. And whether that's for repentance leading to salvation, to know Him and to trust Him for our eternity, to be forgiven of our sins and to trust in Him alone for our salvation, or whether we've known Him as Savior for a long time and we've drifted away and we've let our heart be drawn away in pride, maybe we need to stop that too and get refocused. Stop walking the way of pride. Destruction waits at the end of that road. You are not the master of your own destiny. I am not the master of my own destiny. You are not the walking, talking, end-all, be-all for truth. You are not free from any ruling authority but your own. You see, God is God. You're not going to take His place. You're not going to tell Him what to do. Don't let your heart be lifted up in pride. And if you keep walking that path, ignoring His truth and ignoring His glory and His greatness... The Bible says we will fall. At some point, God will bring you low. So the warning is, listen to it and humble yourself now. Oh, we ought to humble ourselves before the Lord. We ought to bow underneath His mighty hand and say, it's all you, Lord. You lead, you guide, you provide, you receive the glory. It's all you. Quite often we go the other way, don't we? I'm reminded of a Frank Sinatra song that says, I did it my way. And I'm also reminded again of that Johnny Cash song, Sooner or Later God Will Cut You Down. Do you listen to the warnings this morning from this king as he writes his experience from me as pastor? Why do you think I say these things? Just to 
tick people off or make them feel bad or for some sensation. No, I watch for your souls. You understand that? Your spiritual condition, whether it's good or bad, it keeps me up at night. Long after my kids and my wife have gone to sleep, I'm sitting there thinking and praying for you. Don't go down this path of pride. It will wreck you. It will destroy you. There's a cliff at the end. A fall. So humble yourself. Take yourself off the throne of your life and bow before God in everything that we do, everything that we think, everything that we say, who we are. Bow to Him. 1 Peter 5 says, For God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you in due time. You see, though it seems odd to our flesh, when we submit and humble ourselves to God, He lifts us up. Higher than any human pride could take us. To a greater level than any human can achieve. I want to be exalted by God, not abased by Him. And the thing that stands in the way of that is my pride. And let me just say this as well in closing. We look around in society, we see the headlines, we hear the latest news coming in, and all we see is pride, don't we? Prideful, lifted up hearts. Will we in that climate, out there, in our everyday lives, dare to be like Daniel? How so? He saw this pride day after day for 30-something years, didn't he? And what did he do to the king? He reached out. Oh, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Repent, Nebuchadnezzar. You need to repent and have peace with God. (laughs) As much as our human nature would like to see this kind of humbling happen to some people, instead we ought to be pleading with the world to repent. I don't know how this message may have been used. I know it's dealt with my own heart and some things that I can get lifted up in pride in and I've had to humble myself. You find yourself dealing with the problem of pride looking around your kingdom and all that you have built and by your hand for your glory. Be careful. Be careful. Let this warning echo in your heart. Now I know. Now I know. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this day and for your grace. I ask that you would use this message as you see fit. If there be any of us lifted up in pride or find our hearts more concerned with ourselves than you and your word, Lord, I pray that there would be a humbling within before there is a humbling by your hand. I pray that we would bow willingly before you, before you make our need to bow, Lord. Please help us to learn from this example. Forgive me of the prideful, foolish, selfish things that I have done and that I say and the things that are in my own heart, Lord. Please take those out and help me to bow before you as King and God and God alone, Lord. Please move among us as you see fit. I thank you again for all that you've done. Jesus, precious name I pray, amen.